Episode 12 of War in the Book of Mormon, Part 3.2, Battle Analysis, Second Battle of the Nephite Colony. Welcome to War in the Book of Mormon. I am Brian Steed, and in this episode, we will discuss the first battle analysis in this podcast series. In this case, we will focus on what I call the Second Battle of the Nephite Colony. This is Zenith's second major battle that came near the end of his life and reign. I want to inform you that all opinions and suppositions expressed in what follows are entirely mine and in no way reflect the positions, opinions, or policies of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. I will be addressing a series of topics in this analysis. Geographical setting that includes location and terrain slash vegetation who was involved, that includes a discussion on the size and capabilities of both sides, key leaders in the battle, and then I will address various levels of context. These include the grand and theater strategy, operational strategy, and technical strategy. Each of these provide the necessary context for a discussion on the tactical events, what happened in the fight. I then provide some thoughts on the battle, on battle leadership, significance of what happened, and then I will end with both temporal and spiritual lessons learned. The battles about which we will do the battle analyses in this podcast should have sufficient information from the Book of Mormon. However, there will still be need for some suppositions. I will try to always make it clear when I am giving my own thoughts and separating from the scriptural text. I want to make sure that you understand the setup the plan, the execution, and the aftermath and significance of each battle. Now, let's jump into this first battle analysis of our podcast. The second battle of the Nephite colony is part of what I call the second Lamanite domination campaign. There are four such campaigns, two in the time of Zenith and one each for Noah and Limhi. I have labeled these campaigns this way as each campaign is an attempt to dominate the Nephite colony present in the land of Nephi or in the land of Lehi-Nephi. I keep saying this or because sometimes in the Book of Mormon it's referred to as the land of Nephi and sometimes it's called the land of Lehi-Nephi. Even though this episode focuses on the significant battle, it is probable that this battle included other aspects of conflict or military engagement, spies, skirmishes, intimidation, and for that reason I think the battle fits within a larger campaign on the part of the Lamanites. I want to give a general overview of what we are talking about and then get into the details in the record. The Nephites fled the land of Lehi under Mosiah 1 at about 220 BC. About 20 years later, an unnamed mighty man led an expedition back to retake the land from the Lamanites. One of the spies on that campaign was Zenith. Zenith, for reasons we are not given, felt that fighting the Lamanites was unwise. The disagreement between Zenith and the mighty man who led the invasion generated discord and violence such that the vast majority of the Nephite invasion force was killed. Only 50 men made it back to Zarahemla. Zenith gathered together a colonizing force of hundreds of people at least, and maybe thousands or even tens of thousands, and they returned to the land of Nephi about a year later, something like 200 BC. Zenith negotiated with King Laman II to live in the land. Laman II gave Zenith and his people the city of Nephi and Shilom. The Zenithites improved the cities and lived in peace for 12 years. Sometime around 187 BC, Laman II grew concerned with the success and growing strength of the Zenithites, and he sent fighters to attack them in their fields. I refer to this as the first Lamanite domination campaign. The Zenithite farmers fled to the city of Nephi and pled with Zenith. I will read Zenith's words in total about what he does as it serves as an excellent comparison between the two battles. I quote from Mosiah chapter 9 verses 16 to 19. And it came to pass that I did arm them with bows and with arrows, with swords and with scimitars, 
and with clubs, and with slings, and with all manner of weapons which we could invent. And I and my people did go forth against the Lamanites to battle. Yea, in the strength of the Lord did we go forth to battle against the Lamanites. For I and my people did cry mightily unto the Lord, that he would deliver us out of the hands of our enemies. For we were awakened to a remembrance of the deliverance of our fathers. And God did hear our cries and did answer our prayers. And we did go forth in his might. Yea, we did go forth against the Lamanites. And in one day and a night we did slay three thousand and forty-three. And we did slay them even until we had driven them out of our land. And I myself with mine own hands did help to bury their dead. And behold, to our great sorrow and lamentation, two hundred and seventy-nine of our brethren were slain. Close quote. As a reminder, we are getting Zenith's account in the first person. This is an opportunity to digress and provide some thoughts about the numbers with respect to battlefield casualties. I have three points. One, as I am involved with present military terminology, I will stick to how the U.S. military uses the word casualty. It means all people who have been killed, wounded, or who are missing. If I say casualty, I mean all of that. In this case, the numbers given are not for casualties. They are the dead, a subset of casualty figures. Two, in the ancient world, most deaths in war came from disease rather than battlefield interactions. The Book of Mormon does not address that very much. As this was a campaign between two relatively close cities, one might expect the disease played no factor as there wasn't a long campaign of marching and camps to lead to disease. 3. I want to address the point at which armies break and run. There is a significant spectrum when this happens. Japanese soldiers fighting on some islands in the Pacific Ocean in World War II accepted 98% casualties without breaking, running, or surrendering. This is an extreme on one side of the spectrum. There are stories of armies that broke and ran with relatively few casualties inflicted because of surprise and circumstances. That is the other extreme. For the purposes of this effort, I have chosen numbers between 25 and 50% dead for an army to break. For those of you wondering why I'm talking about this, I am doing so to explain where I get my figures for army sizes and population estimates. Zenith gave a specific number for the Lamanite dead, 3,043. That meant that somebody counted the bodies. This also gives us a figure for the size of the Lamanite army, probably between 6,000 and 15,000. As Zenith doesn't say anything about a size disparity, I assume the armies were roughly comparable in size. In a previous episode, I mentioned that Nephite armies were typically smaller than their Lamanite counterparts. That leads me to an estimate of 5,000 to 10,000 or so for the Xenophyte army. In a pre-industrial society, one can consider that the fighting male population represents about 25% of the total population, maybe a little less. By this assertion, one might figure that the Xenophyte population was something in the neighborhood of 40,000 people. I want to note a couple of points from this battle that will be useful in understanding what happened in the second battle of the Nephite colony. One. The Xenophytes were armed with missile and melee weapons, from the simplest clubs to more complex weapons. 2. Xenoph talks about invention of weapons, which leads me to believe he is implying innovation, or at least an encouragement of innovation. 3. Xenoph led his people to battle. 4. They sought God's blessing for battle and believed that God was the source of their strength. 5. They referred back to previous times when God delivered their people. 6. They fought day and night. This is worth another digression. Night battles were uncommon in the ancient world. It was hard enough to command and control a battle in a world without modern communication in the daytime when signals could be seen. Darkness made everything worse. 
the Xenophytes do this more than once, or at least it is implied so. The implication in the first battle of the Nephite colony was that the fighting started in the daylight and continued into the night, which leads me to think that Zenef continued to attack those with whom his fighters were in contact, making it easier to control what happened. 7. The difference in numbers of dead is not uncommon in the ancient world. The Xenophites lost 279 and the Lamanites 3,043. Most killing on the ancient battlefield happened when an army broke, so most of the Lamanites probably died as a result of fleeing the battlefield, and most of the Xenophites died in that initial period before the Lamanites broke. I believe that Laman too later led his army to Zarahemla in an effort to redeem himself. We know that such a Lamanite army was defeated by King Benjamin. My supposition is that, having suffered multiple defeats at the hands of the Nephites, Laman II did not seek battle again. It took 22 years before Laman II died and his son, Laman III, took over and again led his people to war. It is not surprising to think that Laman III would want to establish himself as a powerful leader. How better to do that than through defeating and humbling the very people who defeated his father? Zenith was still king of his people, and so we come to the second Lamanite domination campaign and the setup for the second battle of the Nephite colony at about 164 BC. This campaign and battle came as Zenith was near the end of his life, and he had the opportunity to apply lessons learned from his previous battle experience. This is also a more detailed account of the two battles fought under Zenith. In part, the detail is Zenith's understanding of Lamanite motivations. Even though the words are limited, it is still possible to see some of the Nephite manner of war as demonstrated by Zenith. The analysis of this battle will also include comments and comparisons between this battle and the first battle of the Nephite colony. It would be a logical conclusion that Zenith learned from his first confrontation with the Lamanites as a battlefield leader to develop his tactics and strategies for his second contest. Some of the developments are stated and not inferred as Zenith explained his reasoning. The second battle of the Nephite colony was fought by one army defending its capital by going to battle outside its walls in the open field, rather than fighting from the strength of position afforded the defender by the walls of the city. This should cause one to ponder what walls meant for Nephite or Xenophite cities. They may have been very different from the walls around the city Jerusalem, for example, where the army fought from the walls. In this battle, there is also a record of the reasons and motivations for war. As the information about Lamanite intention comes from Zenith, it is safe to say that he is presenting his side of the story, rather than a completely objective opinion. From a historical viewpoint, this is a skewed narrative, with little attempt at objectivity. However, this is an eyewitness observation, and a first-person perception of causes and reasons. It is also taken as fact that this is an inspired record, and therefore the assertions made are not simply political spin, but do represent the correct view from a gospel-centered perspective. In the record, Zenith provides several examples of cause and effect to assist readers in understanding not just a list of events, but also the causes and consequences of such events. It is probable that Mormon kept much of Zenith's record intact for this very reason. I encourage you to read the account of this battle before listening to the rest of this episode. You will find it in Mosiah chapter 10, verses 6 to 21. Don't worry, you can hit pause and we can wait. Now, assuming that you've read the account, let's move on. Geographical Setting Location As stated previously, the Xenophytes lived in an agricultural zone, probably a valley with three cities or occupation areas of any significance, the cities of Nephi, Shilom, and Shemlon. The first two cities and their accompanying lands have been occupied by the Xenophytes, and the Lamanites occupied the third. 
given the fact that neither Zenith nor Ammon, who came to rescue the Zenithites, mentioned any other settlement of significance leads to the probable conclusion that these were the only settlements of any size in the immediate area. The first battle occurred following a Lamanite attack on farmers on the south side of the village of Shilom. The farmers fled, not into Shilom, but into the city of Nephi, which is to the north. The Nephite response also occurred in the area between the two cities. The second battle of the Nephite colony also occurred north of the land of Shilom as the Lamanites came up to that part of the land. Zenephite spies identified the Lamanite preparations so that Zenith and his people were properly prepared and ready to meet the Lamanites outside the walls of the city. Zenith sent the women and children into the wilderness for safety, terrain, and vegetation. The terrain of the series of engagements associated with the Zenovite colony is never explained. This is true for much of the Nephite record, as Mormon apparently did not feel it necessary to give any detailed geography. We know that Shilom was to the south of Nephi, and can infer that Shemlon, the Lamanite city, was to the north or northeast from the latter description of the Zenophyte flight from the land of Nephi, though my sketches have it primarily to the east-northeast. The Zenophytes moved to the south, round about the land of Shilom. It is probable that they fled away from the concentration of Lamanites. In the Zenophyte record, there are two references to a hill to the west of the land. This hill may also have been the location of the tower built by King Noah, allowing for the best overview of the entire valley of the land of Nephi. Based on the description of this battle and earlier references to attacking Zenophytes in their fields, I think that it can be safely inferred that this was an open field battle in either grazing or farmland between the two Nephite cities. I am making sketches of the battlefield available on the War in the Book of Mormon Facebook page to provide some visual depictions of what I am suggesting. I refer to these images as sketches because I know that they are not maps in that the locations are given to show relationships as imagined rather than representations of something that actually existed. Who was involved? Nephite forces. Zenith was not clear as to the number of his forces. What he does give us in the second battle is an important insight about the organization of his force. I quote from Mosiah chapter 10, verse 9, And it came to pass that I caused that the women and children of my people should be hid in the wilderness. And I also caused that all my old men that could bear arms, and also all my young men that were able to bear arms, should gather themselves together to go to battle against the Lamanites. And I did place them in their ranks, every man according to his age. Close quote. Zenith talks about dividing his forces and placing them in ranks according to age. We know there are at least two divisions, young men and old men. This is similar to other ancient forces. The Romans, during the Republican period, in their manipular legions, divided their forces into four groups based on age, weapons and armor, and experience. The senior-most group was in the rear to provide encouragement and study the younger and less experienced soldiers up front. The ancient Greeks organized in the opposite manner, with the older soldiers in the front ranks and the younger men in their rear. Either way, it was common in the ancient world to organize forces based on age and experience. We are not told in the Book of Mormon whether Zenith's practice was the general method or not, but it is plausible. Though numbers of the forces are not provided, it is implied that the Zenophytes were outnumbered in the battle. The size of the Lamanites, though probably greater, does not seem to be overwhelming or excessively large. Therefore, based on the reasoning given below, the Nephite force was probably between five to 10,000 Lamanite forces. We are not told much about the Lamanites in terms of size, though we are given that they had numerous hosts. I quote from Mosiah chapter 10, verse 8, 
And it came to pass that they came up upon the north of the land of Shilom with their numerous hosts, men armed with bows and with arrows and with swords and with scimitars and with stones and with slings. And they had their heads shaved that they were naked and they were girded with a leathern girdle about their loins. Close quote. It is not clear what is meant by host in the narrative. Later battles describe the opponent in armies, possibly implying a greater level of organization. Hosts seems to imply a large group without apparent tactical organization. Though this may be reading too much into the words, it does fit with a general progression of complexity of conflict. Tribal-based armies rarely fought using disciplined formations anciently and into the modern era. For example, Native American forces fighting in the 18th and 19th centuries after numerous conflicts with the U.S. Army still had not adapted to fighting in formations. Therefore, the use of the word hosts tends toward an interpretation of massed groups of people who attacked in waves of humanity attempting to crush their opponent. Lamanite size is not given, and casualty figures cannot even assist in an estimate of the size as the casualties are described as, quote, so many that we did not number them, close quote. Sometimes this type of statement in the Book of Mormon has been interpreted as meaning a number larger than a previous battle. That should not be assumed. There are many reasons why casualties in one battle might be numbered and in another battle not numbered. Zenith was at the end of his reign and clearly had developed a more mature understanding of the conflict between the two peoples. When he numbered the battle deaths of some 22 years earlier at 3,043 Lamanites and 279 Nephites, he may have had a political or personal motive for doing so, possibly as a way to communicate to his own people or to the opponent the superiority of the Zenophite way of life or of their god versus the Lamanite lifestyle or God. At this point, Zenith has no such delusion about war, though he does emphasize to his people their place in relationship with God. Based on the previous discussion about when organizations break in battle and sizes, which always depended on motivation and training, I previously estimated the Lamanite army in the first battle of, Neph of the Nephite colony as somewhere between six thousand and fifteen thousand. It is likely that the Lamanite army in the second battle was of similar size. We have also had a discussion on arms, clothing, and appearance that is informative. The record says men armed with bows and with arrows and with swords and with scimitars and with stones and with slings. Does this mean that a single fighter carried all of these weapons, or that these weapons were all present and dispersed throughout the host, or that the Lamanites had dedicated archers or slingers or melee personnel, as was true in Alexander the Great's army or a Roman army? Simply stated, we don't know. These possibilities are useful in understanding the options. We are later told that the sons of King Mosiah II, as they journeyed to be missionaries to the Lamanites, each carried a variety of melee and missile weapons on their person. Either way, the Lamanites had both missile and melee weapons in their host, and each fighter may have carried multiple types of weapons to include multiple types of melee weapons, as discussed in greater detail in an earlier episode. Also remember that in the first battle of the Nephite colony, we are told that the Nephites also had a similar array of weapons. So consider these same points with respect to the Nephites as well. I will lay out my thoughts on how this played out in the battle when we get to that point of this episode. In this battle, we get our first description of Lamanite fighters. We are told that their heads were shaved and that they were naked. In the very next phrase, we are told that they were girded with a leathern girdle about their loins. So, not really naked. I ask you to consider this in comparison to later references to armor. We will address this in later episodes as well. The Lamanites are described as naked with shorn heads more than once in the Book of Mormon. I suggest that there is a poetic as well as a specific reason for this. It is later given in direct contrast to the protected, armored, and shielded Nephites. 
In this case, we have no mention of Nephite armor, though we will have such a reference in the next episode for the fifth battle of the Nephite colony. Maybe the Xenophites had armor on in the second battle of the Nephite colony, but Zenith didn't say. We don't know. We do know that the Lamanites were without defensive clothing or shields. Consider that point with respect to why this detail is included. Key leaders in the battle. Nephite forces. Zenith, king of the Nephite colony. We have discussed his background in some detail already, but in summary, Zenith was a spy, a charismatic and visionary leader, and a person who understood and taught others about his and their relationship to God and miracles that come from obedience to him. The Zenophites lived in the land of Nephi for about 34 years at this point in the story, and Zenith describes himself as being in his old age at the time of the battle. Interesting to me is the fact that Zenith does not mention another Nephite by name in his entire record. As a result, we have no idea of any other leaders who might have been present. Even though none are named, one might be reasonable in assuming that Noah, the future king, was present in this battle. We are told that he is the king within a matter of years, and that probably meant that he was an adult at this point. It is also possible though not likely in my thinking, that Noah was sent to be the leader of the women and children who fled for safety into the wilderness. If Noah was present on the battlefield, as I suppose he was, then it makes it more interesting that Noah did not seem to lead his armies when he was king. Rather, he sent them to battle. As I suppose, he knew better because he had seen better from his father. Gideon is another character who will feature prominently under both King Noah and King Limhi. He may also have been present for this battle as well. All my comments about Noah and Gideon are simple suppositions on my part and not supported by any scriptural record. Lamanite forces. Laman III, son of King Laman II, king of the Lamanites. We are told very little about Laman III other than he stirred the people up to anger against the Nephites. The reasons for the Lamanite anger given by Zenith in this part no doubt were learned through his spy network. It is relatively certain that Zenith knew exactly what was being said to excite the Lamanites to war prior to this battle. These reasons are given later in this episode. It is probable that this king held in memory the defeat of the Lamanites in the previous battle, and like many tribal-based societies before, he was seeking vengeance for the loss in addition to the wider social, religious, and political reasons given. Grand and Theater Context The general history of the Xenophytes was given in the previous episode. Here it is important to reiterate that there are significant sociological and political conflicts ongoing throughout the narrative of Zenith. The initial reason for Nephite incursion was a reconquest of previous Nephite lands. Initially, the Xenophites were accepted, but then after 12 years of peaceful coexistence, King Laman began to grow uneasy. This is Laman too. With the growing strength and prosperity of his neighbors, and he sought a preemptive attack to prevent the Xenophites from becoming so powerful that the Lamanites would not be able to dominate them militarily. Zenith further explained the reasoning for the Lamanite acceptance of Zenithite collocation. Quote, they were desirous to bring us into bondage, that they might glut themselves with the labors of our hands, yea, that they might feast themselves upon the flocks of our field. Close quote. From Mosiah chapter 9, verse 12. This was probably not a single battle, but the major confrontation was the culmination of a series of engagements. The first major battle proved unsuccessful for the Lamanites as they suffered a significant defeat. The Book of Mormon record does not provide a link, but in this interim period between attacks on the Xenophyte colony, there was a significant attack on Zarahemla, as we are told in Omni chapter 1, verse 24, and in the Words of Mormon chapter 1, verses 13 to 14 where King Benjamin was instrumental in leading his people against the Lamanites who invaded. 
leaving, quote, many thousands, close quote, of the Lamanites slain on the battlefield. It is possible that these Lamanites were different from the Lamanites of Shemlon, but it seems to fit the overall sequence that there were two defeats, each inflicting thousands of deaths, which caused King Laman II to seriously reconsider his military agenda. The defeats in combination had to be of such a great percentage of military-aged men that it created a delay of an entire generation before a new king sought to fight the Xenophites or Nephites once again. Think about the numbers again. Laman too lost more than 3,000 outside the city of Nephi, and maybe he lost a similar number outside the city of Zarahemla, maybe even more, as they might have been more committed to the attack on a faraway expedition than on a close one. If the Lamanites at this time in the land around Shemlon were about 60,000 people, with about 15,000 of military fighting age, then Laman too lost about 10% of his population and 40% of his fighting men. That would be a reason to stop aggressive military actions. Of course, these numbers are suppositions, but I think that they are useful in providing some scope to what can otherwise be rather uninformative numbers. 22 more years passed before the death of King Laman II brought another king to the throne. His son, Laman III, began the process of inciting the hearts of the Lamanites to hatred and the desire for war with their neighbors. The reason for Lamanite acceptance of the second attack on the Xenophites is finally given in Zenith's explanation of the background for this battle. Zenith provides not just the motivation for this one attack, but for the general enmity between the two families. He began with cultural statements and then went on to the underlying sociological motivations along with his personal commentary on the accuracy of these motivations. I quote from Mosiah chapter 10 verses 12 to 18. They were a wild and ferocious and a bloodthirsty people, believing in the tradition of their fathers, which is this, believing that they were driven out of the land of Jerusalem because of the iniquities of their fathers and that they were wronged in the wilderness by their brethren, and that and they were also wronged while crossing the sea. And again they were wronged while in the land of their first inheritance, after they had crossed the sea. And all this because that Nephi was more faithful in keeping the commandments of the Lord. Therefore he was favored of the Lord, for the Lord heard his prayers and answered them, and he took the lead of their journey in the wilderness." And his brethren were wroth with him, because they understood not the dealings of the Lord. They were also wroth with him upon the waters, because they hardened their hearts against the Lord. And again they were wroth with him when they had arrived in the promised land, because they said that he had taken the ruling of the people out of their hands, and they sought to kill him. And again they were wroth with him, because he departed into the wilderness, as the Lord had commanded him and took the records which were engraven on the plates of brass, for they said that he robbed them. And thus they have taught their children that they should hate them, and that they should murder them, and that they should rob and plunder them, and do all that they could to destroy them. Therefore they have an eternal hatred towards the children of Nephi. For this very cause has King Laman, by his cunning and lying craftiness, and his fair promises, deceived me, that I have brought this my people up into this land, that they may destroy them. Yea, and we have suffered these many years in the land. Close quote. In many respects, this was similar to the reasons Mormon gave later when discussing the reasons behind the Battle of Manti and the larger Lamanite campaign against the Nephites. The Nephite objectives were clear and in opposition to those of the Lamanites. They sought to protect their homes and families and turned to the Lord for assistance in those endeavors. Operational Context Reconnaissance serves a pivotal role throughout the narrative of Zenith. He began as a spy for the Nephite army. His skills were such that he was able to get in close to observe the lifestyle and benefits of Lamanite society, and he felt disposed to argue in favor of the Lamanite's survival and the cohabitation of the land. 
Zenith later employed reconnaissance to protect his people as king. He did not simply do it for the support of his army, but for the survival of the people. He placed spies throughout the Lamanite community and, as a result, had a detailed understanding of Lamanite preparations for war and the reasons as well. It is important to note that this use of reconnaissance was not done until after the first attack on his people, which caught him and his people unprepared. We are told of Zenith's actions in Mosiah chapter 10, verse 2, and I quote, And I set guards round about the land, that the Lamanites might not come upon us again unawares and destroy us. And thus I did guard my people and my flocks, and keep them from falling into the hands of our enemies. Close quote. In addition to reconnaissance, Zenith used a semi-permanent or permanent security force to protect his people from attacks. From the record, it seems as if this guard force remained in place for the complete 22 years between battles. This is a tremendous investment in resources. In both battles under the command of Zenith, the Lamanites attacked on the south of the city of Nephi and in the land of Shilom. There was a reason for this. It is unclear whether this was a terrain or geographic reason or a perception reason. It is possible that Shilom, despite being slightly further away, was easier to reach by concealed approaches than Nephi. It is also possible that Shilom was a weaker walled city than Nephi. The second option is less likely, as none of the battles of this period were conducted through the use of defensive walls for protection of the army. All battles were fought outside the walls of a city. It is likely, though, that Shilom, for whatever reason, was perceived as a weaker location, whether through weaker man-made features or through a weaker geographic position, it is unsure. One reason for this is that during the first encounters between the Xenophytes and the Lamanites, the Xenophyte farmers fled, not to their own city of Shilom, but to Nephi. This certainly happened to warn Zenith and the majority of the people, but it was also probably done for the additional protection afforded by the city of Nephi. There was little real operational maneuver. This was a battle fought between two forces in a single decisive fashion technical context. The Nephite versus Lamanite organization for battle was previously discussed. It is clear that the use of effective reconnaissance or spies and security or guards served the Xenophytes well in preventing surprise on the part of the Lamanites and allowing the Xenophytes to prepare for battle. The other technical innovation is the use of a variety of weapons in this engagement. This is the first detail available on the types of weapons used in major battles. Up to now, the list of weapons are generically linked to the use of the terms wars and contentions. The Nephite list is given for the first battle, and Zenith does not repeat it prior to the second battle. He states that his people were armed with a wide variety of weapons for both missile, attack, and melee. He also stated that they had, quote, all manner of weapons which we could invent, close quote, from Mosiah 9.16. It is not clear if each soldier carried both missile and melee weapons, and whether there were divisions within the organization in a coordinated manner. After the first battle, Zenith continued the weapons development program, making weapons of war of every kind for reasons of preparedness. The Lamanites also had a similar mixture of weapons. Zenith emphasizes that the Lamanites came to war naked, except for a leathern girdle about their loins. This might be a statement about the fanatical commitment of the Lamanites to attack and wage war against the Xenophytes. Like the Nephites, there is no description of the way in which the weapons were employed, in separate groups or each soldier using missile weapons followed by massed use of melee weapons. This dilemma of understanding the use of such weapons is by no means unique to the Book of Mormon. In fact, it is a common part of ancient battle narratives. The proposal here is that the armies were not divided into separate missile or melee groups, but rather most soldiers had some weapon of each type. They discharged their missile weapons prior to the clash of forces and then took up the charge to meet their opponents with their melee weapons, as I will describe in the following section. Tactical Chronology The verb of choice in the first battle is to go forth. 
This does not tell us anything about how the armies actually fought. In the second battle, there is reference to contending with the Lamanites face to face, which implies a clash of forces and a melee battle of competing groups. Then Zenith says that the Zenithites drove the Lamanites out of the land, which implies that the Lamanite army broke and ran and were pursued. As previously stated, it is typical in this phase of a battle that the majority of casualties occurred. The loss of cohesion and the collapse of an opponent provided a wealth of targets and also presented them in the easiest manner to kill, as a back was presented to the opponent rather than an armed front. The reader does not know how the battle occurred, but the following is one possible set of events. The first battle occurred both day and night, telling the reader one of two things. The first possibility was that the fight was a single event and the pursuit lasted a long time. The other possibility was that the fight was not a single engagement, but a series of battles or engagements over a widespread area and requiring a long time to complete. Here is how I am supposing that this second battle occurred. In the second battle, the two armies gathered on a field with the Xenophytes formed into rows or ranks of soldiers, with the youngest age group most forward with slings and bows and arrows, the middle age group next armed with some missile weapons and melee weapons, and the oldest group in the rear with, the, with mostly melee weapons. The young group engaged the enemy with the missile weapons and then withdrew around the flanks of the friendly force to continue to sling stones or fire arrows as opportunity presented itself, but to be outside the main clash of the armies. The Lamanites began the charge as they were angered by this barrage. The second Xenophyte group discharged their missile weapons as the enemy closed and then discarded them in favor of melee weapons and the two armies converged into the initial clash. Within a relatively short time, the Lamanite army was put to flight and the Xenophytes continued the, the attack throughout the Lamanite departure from Xenophyte lands, resulting in significant Lamanite casualties. The frustration and sadness at having to fight a battle caused Zenith to reject the idea of counting the dead, as the numbers must have been in the thousands, similar to his first battle with the Lamanites. Battlefield Leadership Zenith was a leader of vision and preparation, and he set the stage for the future great Book of Mormon military leaders to come. He planned and prepared for engagements and battles through fortifications and weapons development and procurement. Following the first attack, wherein he was surprised, Zenith initiated a comprehensive plan of security and reconnaissance for his entire land. This provided him with critical information and allowed him to place and prepare his forces in a preemptive fashion. When Zenith's forces took the field against the Lamanites in the second battle, there was no surprise. Zenith's preparation was not limited to weapons that are well known, but he also expanded the production to use the full imagination of his people in devising more effective weapons. Zenith led his people in battle. He was a heroic style leader among people who were still fundamentally a tribally based society. Even as an old man, he led and personally commanded. He also inspired his people by explaining who they were in relation to God and their responsibility to God through their actions and behaviors. We know little more of this dynamic and remarkable Nephite. Significance The second battle of the Nephite colony did not end the animosity between the Xenophites and Lamanites, but it provided some time before the next major conflict. It created an aura of protection that the Xenophytes enjoyed for years. The next Lamanite attack was small-scale, directed against farmers in their fields, and took place sometime between 160 and 150 BC. When one considers the Nephite boasting that took place after their successful attacks upon the Lamanites during what I labeled the third battle of the Nephite colony in about 150 BC or so, it is possible to see the fighters and people thinking about what they considered three major fights that were all Nephite victories. 
All of the defeats to that point were against small outposts, isolated farmers, or two small Xenophyte military organizations. This era of security and prosperity was coupled with an idolatrous king who eventually created a period of decadent decline such that when a subsequent and similar-sized Lamanite attack did occur in or around 145 BC, the Xenophyte forces could not stand against them, but they fled into the wilderness as did the women and children of Zenith's day. The difference was King Noah left the women and children to the mercy of the attacking forces and fled with the fighters. The tables had completely turned. It is probable that the innovations of Zenith continued in his son Noah, who used towers for surveillance and early warning and strengthened the notion of a standing military with a semi-professional chief captain. Noah was criticized as being lazy by Mormon. One form of his laziness was to substitute distance observation and surveillance from a tower for on the ground and being among the Lamanite population in the form of spies. Lessons learned. Temporal. Zenith provides great insight into warfare in this transitionary period. He was able to put all elements together for battlefield success and provided key elements of knowledge to understand changes amongst the Nephite peoples. I will always refer to categories of military action like identification, isolation, suppression, maneuver, and destruction. Identification. Zenith himself, a former spy, used spies, or reconnaissance, effectively to not just determine the time and location of an attack, but also the reasons behind the attack. Zenith went beyond the simplistic understanding to real empathy of his opponents. This happened in the beginning as he viewed the Lamanites during the very first Nephite expedition of conquest. Zenith is a fabulous example of what it means to have empathy for one's opponents. Isolation. Zenith did not need to isolate the Lamanites on the battlefield, as the tactics of the day seemed to lead to a single-day battle with little or no logistics and a very limited geographical area. Suppression. The two armies met face-to-face, implying a head-on clash of forces in a traditional ancient style of engagement. There was little attempt by either side to maneuver. Maneuver. Zenith's use of deploying his people according to age could have provided a position of advantage by holding the steady and experienced warriors for a decisive moment. Destruction. The pursuit of fleeing Lamanites allowed the Xenophytes to instill a memory of defeat that lasted for years and was able to deter aggression. Lacking casualty numbers, it is difficult to completely predict the losses, but the length of time between the large-scale Lamanite attacks communicates a psychological blow of some degree. Lessons Learned Spiritual Of the two lessons, these are the most important ones. I want to emphasize that these are my examples of how one can derive useful lessons from the details in the military elements of the Book of Mormon. It is okay if you have derived other, hopefully inspired lessons than what I present here. I am offering my thinking, not the final thoughts, on these types of lessons. I am interested in your thoughts in comments or emails. The first one, being innovative in crafting weapons. This is both a lesson in preparation and in creativity. Zenith used times of peace to develop the tools to best conduct warfare. He gave his people time in a relatively stress-free environment to be creative. This preparation and creativity are critical for people to develop an understanding of how best to defend against the potential strengths of the adversary. It is in reflection that we can best understand how to fight and what weapons will give us the greatest advantages. A specific example is that of studying the scriptures, which is where our swords are truly fashioned. Second, spies and security. The Lord has provided us insight into the camp of the enemy. We have leaders who have been given knowledge in the means and tactics of Satan. The teachings of the prophets, both present and past, help us to see how the adversary will fight and give us the warning and opportunity to prepare so that we can be ready. Such foreknowledge also provides us a wall of security behind which we can form our defenses without concern of surprise. Third, 
form in ranks based on age and experience. The Lord prepares each of us through the organizations of the earthly church to be strengthened in experiences of service. We have a preparatory priesthood, and we have auxiliaries that teach and train service and help each person transition from primarily being served to primarily being the servant. We are ordered in ranks and allowed to fight with those of our peer experience group. Fourth, protection. We are not told about any presence of armor in this battle, but we are told that the Lamanites went into battle without protection and they lost the battle. I believe that this is significant. When we go into battle, we must be protected. I, of course, refer you to the discussion in Ephesians chapter 6, verses 11 to 18. Note that Paul states that the helmet is a helmet of salvation and the breastplate is a breastplate of righteousness. The Lamanites are specifically stated as being bareheaded and bare-chested, or without salvation and without righteousness in this poetic combination. I said, when we go into battle, we must be protected. Every time we leave our home or open a web browser, we are going into battle. Conclusion We know little about this battle and its predecessor in Zenith's experience, But we do know that there are small nuggets of useful information given that help us to appreciate the transition in the Nephites in general from tribal mass attacks to a force of disciplined and complex maneuvers that we see only a few generations later. The next episode is our second battle analysis, the fifth battle of the Nephite colony. We will also discuss that battle in context and include lessons from the battle to help listeners recognize the value in understanding war in the Book of Mormon in detail to inform your own life. I remind you that I am posting battlefield sketches on the Facebook page. I invite you to reach out and ask questions and send comments to me on Facebook at War in the Book of Mormon or at War in the Book of Mormon at gmail.com. All one word, War in the Book of Mormon at gmail.com. Until next time.